Institute of World Mission podcast. You're listening to the show for Adventist cross-cultural mission enthusiasts. My name is Alex Ott, and together with the IWM team, we invite you to join us today. This podcast is a production of the Institute of World Mission brought to you with support of the General Conference Missions family of ministries and services. Hello there, friends. Welcome back to the Institute of World Mission podcast. As a community of Adventist missions enthusiasts, we live in a crucial moment in history. It's a great privilege to be in our Lord's team, be part of His mission, to save as many as possible before He comes. This is precisely why every person who responds to God's call to cross-cultural ministry is a precious member of this community. In this light, it is a privilege for me to speak today with Conrad Vine. Conrad is the director of Adventist Frontier Missions, a supporting ministry of Seventh-day Adventist Church that sends out missionaries. What that is and how it relates to the mission of the church will be our primary conversation points today. With that, let's get straight into the interview itself. Conrad, welcome to the Institute of World Mission podcast. It's a privilege to be able to chat with you today. Wonderful. So would you please share with our listeners a little bit more about yourself and your ministry? Well, I, I, I was uh, raised in England. My father was a pastor. And uh, in his generation, there were five or six Adventist pastors in our family. Uh, I gave my life to Jesus when I was 13 at the camp meeting. Uh, the preacher spoke on Hosea and Goma and God's love for wayward hearts. And so I answered the altar call and I was baptized a year later at the age of 14. And um, after completing high school, I spent uh, some time in Israel as a, for a gap year. I worked on a kibbutz on the Lebanese border and then down near the West Bank. And uh, after that, I did a business degree at a state university in England. And um, I really enjoyed that. Uh, during my time there, um, I could have gone to any number of churches in that part of England. Um, but I wanted to be part of a church plant. And so um, as I arrived in that city, Birmingham, for my studies, I heard that there was a church plant starting in a neighboring city, so I volunteered to be part of that team. And uh, so for the next four years, I would travel every Sabbath, and um, by God's grace, a thriving church was planted in that neighboring city um, among uh, the, the white uh, host community primarily. Uh, which is hard to do in England. I was just uh, going to mention, this is not something that happens often. No, it doesn't happen very often, but there was a dedicated team of about 15 people leading that church plant, and God blessed, and nowadays they get upwards of 100 people every Sabbath coming from that community. So it was just a privilege to see God at work in, in church planting in, in secular Britain uh, during my student years. Um, after concluding my degree, um, I served with the British healthcare system for two years, uh, before God providentially led to ADRA. And uh, so I spent uh, about eight years with ADRA in Azerbaijan and then Tajikistan and Afghanistan. And uh, before I became used more as a troubleshooter by ADRA, and I would float around the world you know, doing six months in Sri Lanka after the tsunami, or time in Kenya, or um, time in Haiti or Peru, 
um, in total Wide lived and worked. to different parts of the world. Yeah, yeah. The, the total number of countries was almost 40 countries where I either was on a short-term assignment or was living there for three to six months. Okay. And so I got to see much of the world. Um, I uh, was involved in a lot of relief operations. I don't really enjoy them because you burn out very quickly in those kind of operations. Um, it was also my privilege in, in one country, in the Caucasus, um, I was uh, serving alongside um, Martin Gabby Phillips, and of course they, they, they've served in Muslim ministries. Gabriela Phillips is actually an interviewer for a whole series on our podcast, so our listeners are very much um, aware yes, of her. Yes. Yeah. And uh, they were leading it, uh, we, we were all working for ADRA, and in our spare time we were busy planting a church. Um, among former Muslims, and I don't think it was official Adra activity, but it's what we did in our spare time. I, st- I lived on their couch for a year and a half uh, because in that post-Soviet Republic, um, uh, my apartment was on the fifth floor, and uh, the electricity came on, you know, for maybe an hour a day, generally when I was at work, and for me to get water into my apartment, um, I had to pay an old lady, a babushka, to to turn on the, the fan, the, the, the pump, to pump water into my apartment when there was water. The problem was there were four floors beneath me all pumping water at the same time. And so I would get a dribble coming out on the fifth floor. And so after about two months of living on bottled water, I gave up and said, okay, I'll go and live with Marty and Gabby, who had uh, um, some water tanks stuck into their bathroom, these big aluminum water tanks. And so if you went to the restroom at night, you had to be very careful not to cut your head open because there were these tanks in there. Um, so. Yeah, um, learnt, uh, I could preach in Russian while I was out there, learnt okay. the importance missiologically of learning another person's language, of showing the respect and giving the time and effort to learn another language. When you learn another language, you learn how people think. Yeah, that's so true. And, you know, the Russian language is filled with imperatives. You know, so in England, when, when, the, uh, uh, when, the, uh, when the hymn is finished, the pastor says, would the congregation please be seated? And in Russia, they say, sadichus, <laughs> which just means like, sit. Uh, and so there's a lot of imperatives in the Russian language, but in Russian heritage, there's a lot of dictatorship and autocracy, whether it's the czars or the communists. And, and so you see this, 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 these, these cultural, uh, the language reflects the culture and, and, the, and the culture reflects the language. And so um, uh, having spent time with ADRA, went, into, um, went to New Bold College in England, did an MA in New Testament studies, uh, served in the pastoral ministry before I was called to Middle East Union as Secretary Treasurer. And uh, after serving there, I came to Minnesota, um, where I was really a missionary in Minnesota. I was serving as a pastor with m- uh, my wife and I was serving there. And it was a privilege to serve there for four years before we were called to AFM in 2011. And uh, we came to AFM in August 2011, so it's been uh, eight years now. And it's been an incredible blessing. We've, you know, we've had uh, 19 homes in 19 years of marriage. And maybe some of your listeners can relate to that when you're moving around. Um, but of those 19 homes uh, in 19 years, one of them has been constant for eight years. That's in Berrien Springs. So it really was 18 homes in, in, in 11 years in 11 of marriage. Years. <laughs> and I'm sure that every missionary listening to this podcast can relate to the reality of moving on a, on a regular basis and traveling light and not putting down roots and so forth. You yeah. know, Conrad, you definitely had your share, probably more than average, of, uh, of that experience. 
thank you. Thank you for sharing with us. Today we wanted to talk um, about Adventist Frontier Missions, the, organizations, the, the organization that you lead um, presently. And you being the president of AFM is the best person to talk with uh, to, for our mm -hmm. listeners who are missionaries themselves mm -hmm. uh, to understand um, uh, what AFM is deeper, better, mm -hmm. to, uh, to get to know about it just a little bit. So if you could um, share with us what is AFM's purpose, what does the organization accomplish, what does it do? Well, that's a great question. So the purpose or the, the mission of Adventist Frontier Missions is to establish indigenous Seventh-day Adventist church planting movements. Um, our role is not to build institutions per se. Um, our role um, is to establish indigenous uh, church planting movements, which means we want uh, local leadership to grow to take over the leadership. Um, we want as missionaries to work ourselves out of a job. And generally, we only send missionaries where the Adventist Church asks us to send missionaries. So if um, we don't just sit and look at a map and say, where are we going to send missionaries now? Um, we only send missionaries when the local union or mission sends us in a formal request. And we're actually inundated with requests for missionaries. Um, and we consider each request on its merits against certain missiological criteria. Um, for instance, is there two and a half percent of that people group, are they Protestant Christians or not? If they already are, then, then we're more reluctant to send missionaries there. And then Which is a benchmark for being kind of Kind reached, of reached, right? yes, yeah. yeah. There's a critical mass of indigenous believers who can carry forward the gospel. Uh, then we look at um, what, are, what is the number of Adventists in that people group. And um, because sometimes, let's say in countries like Papua New Guinea, you'll have a significant Adventist presence, but a very small pro um, other Protestant presence. And so um, we look at the number of Adventists. Uh, we take into account factors such as um, the, the resistance of that people group historically to the gospel. Um, sometimes um, we're asked to send missionaries because um, there are, within the local mission or union, there are maybe um, ethnic problems, um, tribal conflicts, um, maybe the church wants plausible deniability. They want mission work to go on in a certain part of the world where there are maybe extremists, and they don't want it to be seen as officially the Adventist church doing it. Um, so we get asked to do work like that. Um, so we only send missionaries where there are, um, when we get a formal request from a union or from a mission, and then we sign an agreement with that mission or the union um, for, for the projects where we operate. Uh, so even if there's a change of leadership on the part of AFM or within that union, um, that formal agreement still stands. And um, so, so our missionaries, um, we, we mostly are from North America, but we do have missionaries from the European Union and also from Africa and uh, Inter-America Division. And uh, uh, we also have missionaries from South Africa and increasingly now from Brazil. We opened an office in Brazil um, three years ago. And uh, we're probably going to be opening an office in South Korea um, next year as well to um, provide an avenue for service for people who may not otherwise have the chance. So um, most of our missionaries are, are, are not pastors, uh, nor are they theology professors. They, they, they come from other professional groups. They may be teachers, accountants, architects, nurses, that kind of range of profession. Uh, so we even have some software engineers out in the field. And uh, so we provide a doorway for people who would, who would not 
normally um, be employed as a missionary within our church per se, but who still sense the call to cross-cultural mission service. And that happens for a number of reasons. You, know, you, may, you may be living in America, but what your mother or your father came from Turkey, and you may have a burden to share the gospel back in Turkey, um, but you're an English teacher. In, in America, and the chances of you being employed by the church as a formal missionary back in Turkey are, are remote, to say the least. And so AFM provides a doorway for people who may not have another chance um, to, to, to have a vehicle for serving in cross-cultural missions. And those professional skills come in very, very helpful in the mission field. They enable you to gain social legitimacy for why you're in this country, um, particularly if you're running an English language school or you're running a website, or you're doing cultural research. Um, this all gives um, social credibility in the front lines. So AFM actually started with some students um, in Andrews University right here in Berrien Springs back in 1985. And um, there were some students um, led by Clyde Morgan and uh, there was a group around them. There were some missions professors at Andrews. I was just going to ask if you would tell us a little bit of the history. So you, you were saying there was a group of students who, yes. uh, who kind of had a vision. They had a vision and they wanted to be frontline church planters. And um, so they, they had this, as they studied their classes in missiology, this conviction grow, grew in their hearts that, that um, maybe God is calling us to this. And um, so they explored what were the opportunities um, within the Adventist church and realized that for, for young students, um, they had a really good opportunity to serve as a one-year student missionary. But um, as students, there, there weren't many options for them to serve as long-term career missionaries, um, you know, a full-time church planter on the front line somewhere. And so um, they spent a, a few seasons of prayer and eventually they incorporated AFM in the summer of 1985. 85. 85. It started here in Berrien Springs, and um, I still look through those old board meeting minutes. So some 34 years ago. That's yes, yeah, we have those minutes, and they were meeting in somebody's um, back. Uh, they were, the first meeting was in somebody's living room, then, <clears throat> then there was a meeting in a, in a garage because... Um, uh, so the, 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 the person was moving their home and the, the living room was full of boxes. So just like, you know, Amazon and Microsoft, um, AFM also uh, started, you might say, in a garage. Those thoughts analogies <laughs> are running through my, through my mind. Um, but it, it really was um, the leading of the Holy Spirit. And um, the first missionary family were the Scalzis who launched out to northern Philippines in 1987, 1988. And uh, they went to the Ifugao people. Uh, where there was no Adventist presence, and now there is a thriving Adventist presence with dozens of churches there. And um, they spent um, many years serving out there as frontline missionaries. And over the years, we've, we've learned many lessons about what works in missions, um, things that, that are counterintuitive, maybe, um, paradoxes uh, within mission. Um, but we continue to see God's leading. Thank you for, for that bit of history. Now, Conrad, you just mentioned this first couple that went out, and mm -hmm. uh, since then there have been many. So mm -hmm. how, how does AFM select its missionaries? How does it find its missionaries? Well, um, one of the hardest things in, in mission service is finding the right people. I would imagine. Uh, and, you know, I go back to the stories of Hudson Taylor, you know, with the China Inland Mission. 
um, who would pray that, Lord, this year give us 70 missionaries. And God would bring 70 missionaries, but it wasn't from where he was expecting those missionaries. And so um, we recruit, um, we have an active recruitment program in the, in the colleges in North America and Canada, the Adventist colleges. Um, we go and speak for their mission weeks and mission rallies. And we're, we're planting the seed in the minds of students to serve as student missionaries for one year. That's comparable to the AVS or one year admission program that the GC runs. And we benchmark on the costs for that. Um, so we're comparable in terms of cost. And we're also planting the seeds in these young people's minds about serving as career missionaries once they graduate from college. Um, in fact, uh, we've seen research that shows that people decide to be a missionary between the age of 8 and 12 as their life work. And so now... Between the age of... of 8 and 12. Okay, 8 and 12. Just as you have the 1040 mission window, you have the 814 mission window for teenagers give their lives to Jesus. Well, it's also a significant area for people deciding to become missionaries. So we actually run in Bering Springs here a kids' day every year, and we have maybe 150 kids from local Adventist schools across Michigan and Indiana. They come in for this, and um, we, uh, we, we're booked up for about two years in advance. You know, We don't just say we're going to hold it in September and who wants to come. There's a long waiting list to get into that event. Um, and the, the purpose of that event is to um, encourage young people to think about being full-time missionaries in their home communities and also cross-culturally once they finish their educational process. So starting as early as working with children, yes. this is fascinating. This is just fascinating. Oh, it's very intentional because uh, we realize that that's the crucial age. That's when people make decisions. Uh, we have a young lady serving with us right now in West Africa. Um, it's a land that lives under Sharia law. And she knew from the age of six that she was going to be a missionary to that country. That was the that was the conviction God laid on her heart, and she was she was praying for years that God opened the door for me to serve as a missionary in this country. Uh, she did a nursing degree precisely so that she would have some skills to minister to uh, Muslim women within that country. Uh, then she joined us, and um, she's been serving now for two years, and um, that's a good example of someone serving in the front lines now, but who knew from, you know, six, seven, eight years old, this is going to be my life's work. And uh, you, you actually, we see this in, you know, the stories of Hudson Taylor and William Carey and Adniram Judson. God impresses on people's hearts at a young age that this is my life work for you. So uh, we also recruit um, uh, by uh, speaking in churches, speaking in camp meetings, um, speaking at weeks of prayer, um, any chance we get to, to talk about the needs of the mission field. And then we ask God to move upon people's hearts. And uh, maybe three quarters of our missionaries do not have any formal theological training. They are people from all walks of life. Um, and we don't ask them to have a formal theological training prior to launch. Um, there, are some, there are some traits we're looking for. And number one is we need to see that you're an active soul winner in your home community. If you're not an active soul winner in London, the United Kingdom, then you're not going to get on a plane and become an active soul winner in Lagos in Nigeria. So you need to have a passion for souls in your own home community. If you're not, in, if you're not invested in soul winning and evangelism back home, then it's not going to work for you overseas. Uh, secondly, uh, we look for, um, in terms of your character or your psychological profile, we're looking for um, flexibility and resiliency because mission work is hard, as I know many of your listeners appreciate. Um, there are many 
um, bumps along the road in mission service. You need people who are flexible, you need people who have emotional and spiritual resiliency, and uh, you need people who are comfortable working in a very open and unstructured working environment. Um, so for instance, if, if you're an accountant, the chances are you work in a very structured and orderly working environment with a monthly cycle for payroll, an annual cycle for audit and so forth. As a missionary, um, landing in you know a country or in a city where there's no Adventists. There's probably nobody looking over your shoulder. Absolutely, there's no office to go to. There's, you don't, there's, there's nobody you can check in with every morning. Um, you need to be comfortable working in a very unstructured working environment and creating your own reality. And so that requires people with initiative, with entrepreneurial skills. Responsibility, a sense of responsibility. Yes, uh, with drive and, um, and willing to kind of do the unthinkable at times. So um, we have a recruiting office in Brazil, and this year um, we'll probably get 25 people out of Brazil. We need to grow to 50 a year out of Brazil in the next two years. Uh, we have a recruiting office in South Africa, and we have a supporting office in, in Canada. And uh, the reason we're thinking of opening in Korea is they have the Thousand Missionary Movement Program, which is a really good program, uh, works in close partnership with Northern Asia Pacific Division. Um, and that's a bit like one year in mission um, yes. in, in the United States. Now, when people return from the Thousand Missionary Movement program, they often have a yearning to be a full-time career missionary, but they don't really have that option. Uh, so um, with the reason that the, the, the church in Korea, the people in the union asked us if we could go and open an office there, was they see a lot of people coming back from one uh, thousand missionary movement activities who say, hey, we'd like to do this permanently for a, for a career, for our life work, for our life calling. And um, they really don't have many options open to them. So we'll continue with those discussions and we'll probably open, God willing, sometime next year in South Korea. That is very so, good news. So we just provide an open doorway for people who may not otherwise have a chance to be a formal missionary. We provide an open doorway for people to serve. Now, with all these missionaries going out there, how are they supported? Uh, does AFM pay their salaries? I mean, it's, mm -hmm. uh, you know, if people are listening and they will want to share this with mm -hmm. somebody they know mm -hmm. uh, who would want to be, become a missionary mm -hmm. and have maybe a, a, an opportunity, mm -hmm. uh, what happens with this part of life? Well, Jesus commanded us to ask the Lord of the Harvest for laborers. Nowhere did he ask us to ask the Lord of the Harvest for money. Because when somebody steps forward and says, I'm going to be a missionary, God always provides the means. And what does that practically um, mean practically, for the Adventist Frontier Missions? Okay, so um, we, we raise our own funds with, with our missionaries. And uh, when a missionary, uh, if you go to student missionary, uh, the cost is $12,000 a year. And the student missionary has to raise 5000 to show that kind of commitment to this. And we raise a 7000 match. So uh, the student missionary will speak in churches. And you're not raising funds, you're raising friends. You're raising people who will pray for you, who will fast when there's a crisis in the mission field, who will uh, maybe send you a Christmas parcel, um, who maybe do a VBS and you'll come out and do a VBS or a mission project where you're working. So the student missionaries and the Korean missionaries, they raise their funds and they speak in churches and they build a support team. And that support team um, comprises uh, people from all walks of life, and they may give um, $10 a month, they may give a one-off gift of $500 or $5,000, or, $5, or they may pledge, you know, some people pledge like you know, $3 a month 
um, in small amounts like that. But uh, every building in the wall is necessary. And whether somebody gives 10000 or they give you know, $50, um, everything is necessary. And God blesses every giver. And so if I were to give you an arrow, um, the first place you would look at is the arrowhead. And you touch it to see if it's sharp. And then you maybe would say, is there any poison on this? And I would say, no, of course not. Um, but behind, everybody looks at the arrowhead on an arrow. But for an arrow to reach its mark, there has to be a wooden shaft and feathers at the back. And the donors are prayer partners. Um, they're prayer partners. They're financial givers. They do short-term mission trips. They write letters of encouragement to the missionaries. They represent the wooden shaft and the feathers. They are just as much a part of the story of missions as the missionaries themselves. The missionaries are the tip of the arrow, but they're not the whole arrow. And so there are many people in the Adventist church who, who want to give to missions. Um, they, they want to know where their money is going, and with AFM they know the money goes to that particular project and it doesn't go anywhere else. They want to know the missionaries personally. They like getting feedback from the missionaries every month on what's happening. And we tell our missionaries, tell the truth. If, when you have success, share success. When you have a problem, tell the problems, because that's what people are going to be praying for. And the net result of this is, um, is that Sister White talks about um, the, the reflex uh, influence that when a church wants to grow at home, one of the best ways to encourage growth at home is to start supporting foreign missions. And then you start to see blessings in your own church. And um, just to give you a simple reality, if, if a missionary comes to my church and says, I'm, I'm raising funds to go and be a missionary in, in some country, um, I'll say to my, talk about it with my wife and say, yeah, we'd like to support you and we'll pledge $20 a month to this. And then the, the next thought in my mind is, well, but if I'm pledging money to help work in, in, let's say, West Africa, well, what about my own community? What am I doing back home here? So the moment people start supporting missions in the 1040 mission window, almost their next thought is, but what about my own church? What can I do here? If I'm invested in mission work among the Muslims or the Hindus or the Buddhists, what about among the postmoderns of North America or Europe? And so, so that is a blessing for the local churches. Oh, it's a big blessing for local churches. And time and again, we hear from pastors that when a church decides, sometimes churches decide to, say, put $100 a month towards a mission project with AFM. Um, when churches do that time and again, then they, they become more missiologically focused in their own communities. And they realize that, okay, if we're supporting work overseas, what about in our own community? What are we doing here? Great. So there's a direct blessing for the home church in giving. And so um, that is why um, conferences all across America are happy for AFM missionaries to raise funds in their churches and within their territories because they see the reflex action, that there's a blessing in the home churches. And it takes uh, an average student missionary about two months to raise their money. They speak of five or six churches and the money comes in. And the career missionary? Career missionary, about a year and a half to raise their funds. And um, when they're raising their funds, it may be, say, $5,000 a month. That's the target that we're raising. Um, now, the missionary may be paid you know, $1,000 a month out of that. We benchmark with what local pastors are paid, and we add a small um, percentage on top of that because it's hard to live overseas as an expat. You know, there's an expat tax. You know, you go to the market and they charge you more because you're a foreigner. They think they can trick you. Um, but that money also pays for church planting expenses, hiring of local Bible workers if possible. Um, it covers their health insurance, their retirement back in the States, and so forth. And so... And when somebody's raising funds for AFM, 
it's for a project, not just for the individual. And you may be paying for you know, 10 local workers out of that $5,000 a month in addition to your own wage. And so um, the missionaries, they, they raise this while they're doing their existing job. They're not AFM employees while they're doing this fundraising. And it's important for people to do the fundraising because if you go all expenses paid, you're less likely to go in faith. But if you, if you see God move that financial mountain for you, you know he wants you out there. So when you get dengue fever or there's a mob in town or there's civil unrest or there's an earthquake or you're having tr problems with your visas, you're not going to just go home because you know that God wants you out there because he, he moved that financial mountain to get you out there. So um, the, the fundraising, nobody likes doing it at, at first, but after a while you realize what a blessing it is. To, to look donors in the eye uh, who are on fixed incomes, such as retiree, and they're going to pledge $10 a month, and you know that's all their spare cash. Um, it's an honor and a privilege, and it helps you with, in with integrity and accountability for how you use those funds. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that, um, Conrad. Now, speaking of the future of AFM, you know, mm -hmm. as, as a leader, uh, you have already mentioned a few things, uh, the different offices, but let me ask you, where do you see the, the future of uh, this missions movement, the Frontier Adventist Missions as an organization, as a group of uh, missionaries? Oh, that's a really good question. Uh, we're going through a strategic planning process right now Is that right? with our board. Uh, we, we're just coming to the end of a five-year strategic plan, and uh, we're starting the process again next week. Um, but we're going to focus on, on rather than a five-year strategic plan, on annual priorities and what are the key strategic initiatives that we want to accomplish. Um, I don't want to f you know, f prejudge what we're going to decide on in the next week, okay. but I do know that um, focusing on internal leadership development, succession planning and cross-training for leadership positions, uh, and that would involve everybody. So if you're a career missionary on the front line, you would um, be participating in, in team leadership training because you may not want to be a team leader, but you may be forced upon you if somebody goes home or if somebody's out of the field sick. Or just even working with uh, uh, building up anything locally, you work with people, so those skills are... Those crucial. skills are really important. Um, uh, more focus on the pipeline of missionaries, so opening in, this, in South Korea. Uh, we've started the process of discussing with the Australian Union, opening an office out there, but we're not sure how that's going to go. Um, we're also looking at... Um, uh, to, uh, should we say, internal quality control measures at this moment in time. Uh, but perhaps more interestingly, um, the focus of missions, um, there are various models of missionaries. We have tent makers. We've mobilized 85 tent makers in the last three years. Those are people who are not paid by AFM, but we simply encourage them to take professional employment in the 1040 mission window. And then we provide monthly coaching on church planting for them. And that's kind of the business as mission model, you might say. Right. And uh, we will be exploring that some more. We want to expand the tent maker program. And we may um, move into a hybrid whereby people maybe raise some launching funds with AFM and come for training, and then they serve as tent makers overseas. Basically finding a job there or launching their own yes, business. Yes, yeah. Um, and and that, would, that certainly reduces the financial burden from the states or the donor countries. Um, the difficulty with, with, with businesses, mission or tent makers, is that you're subject to private employers who, yes, they provide visas and, and employment, but those job contracts, you never know quite how long they're going to last for. And so um, 
if you know that you have a stable donor base and you can commit 20 years of your life to a people group, you have the time to learn the language and learn the culture and develop deep and trusting friendships. But if you're on an annual renewable contract with an oil company in Saudi Arabia, you don't know how long you've got in the country. And so that changes how you work. Um, you know, if, you, if you could be gone in three months, that has a big influence on how you work as opposed to saying, I can be here for 20 years of my life. And so there are pros and cons of these different missionary models. Um, so you're, you guys are exploring the tent making a little bit more, which we'll, I'm very happy to hear. We'll be exploring more of the tent making and maybe a hybrid between the traditional career missionary model and the tent making model. Um, so uh, that, that's kind of what the future holds in the next year for us. In terms of you know, where we're going to be in five years' time, well, I hope we're all in heaven by then. Um, but I think that um, the, our, as, as a general, my general observation as an Adventist is that um, our, our eschatology tells us that one day we can neither buy nor sell and we're going to be social pariahs because of the, the Sabbath issue and the mark of the beast. Um, and yet, in our ecclesiology, we have built up an incredible worldwide system that is completely dependent on access to the global financial systems. And um, so, it wouldn't take much, um, you know, if banks decide to you know, not do not do business with you. You know, if Citibank and HSBC were to say we're not going to do business with Adventists, then globally, the global Adventist system would grind to a halt within about two months, and all the intrinsic transfers would come to an end. And if, if MoneyGram or Western Union won't do transfers and your regular banks won't bank with you, um, all the, the um, allocations, the grants, the funding mechanisms, that there are multiple examples of this all around the world, it all grinds to a halt within about two months because people don't have the cash flow locally to support their own operations. And so in AFM, we also have that same tendency. We, we, we daily access the you know, banking system for bank wires and transfers and watching the exchange rates closely. But... Um, we need to think about how do we make sure that how we do business actually prepares us for end-time events. How do we become less dependent on access to the global financial systems? Because we, like the church, are to some extent dependent upon access to the global financial systems for our daily operations. And all of, probably most of your missionaries are completely dependent on access to the global financial systems for their international, for their payments to be made, for their salaries, to airline tickets to be purchased and all the rest of it. Well, one day, if we no longer have access to all of that, how are we going to function? That's a critical question. And that requires us to have really you know, local, locally sustainable businesses embedded in local communities where missionaries can support themselves as tent makers, um, even if they don't have access to the global financial systems. Thank you for mentioning this, Connor. This is a, a major strategic issue for, for us as Adventists uh, mm -hmm. to bring the gospel to the ends of the world, to all mm -hmm. those in the world to all of those unreached people groups. Mm -hmm. Well, the time is running so fast. I have one more question, you know, in mm -hmm. this interview. Would you please share with us um, how our listeners can find out more about Adventist Frontier Missions? What are some of those ways? Well, uh, like most organizations, we have a website. It's AFM Online. That's one word, afmonline.org. Um, you can read out about our history, our mission. You can learn there about how you can get involved. We're looking for prayer partners, for short-term missionaries. You can be a volunteer at a project, or you may decide you want to be a career missionary. Um, or you may know somebody who you think could be a good career missionary and would love to, love to hear from them. And uh, you can connect with us directly through the website. 
Um, we speak at uh, camp meetings in Europe, at youth congresses such as in Germany each year, and um, at the um, camp meetings across the United States. And we're also promoting the Inter-American Division with their webinars. That, um, they operate from the division. We participate in those webinars. So um, the, the first place to, to contact us is through the website. If somebody is seriously interested in becoming a missionary, um, give us a call. And I, we have a recruitment director called uh, John Baxter. We'll spend time with you. We'll visit you in your home. We want to make sure that if you do decide to be a missionary, that it is the right choice for you as a family. We don't just want anybody as missionaries, but we want you to be a success as a missionary. And so we need to make sure that wherever you go, um, you're well placed and well positioned to be a success in ministry. Thank you, Conrad. Thank you for coming on the Institute of the World Mission podcast. It's my pleasure, and God bless in your ministry. Just before letting you go, as usual, I'd love to give you just a few updates for this upcoming week. First of all, if you are a member of the IWM Community Home Group, which is a group on our social network, on Workplace, check out the recent community video update we did. I think you'll find it interesting. Second, this week we're getting together for IWM September webinar. Together with Pat Gustin, we will be introducing the topic of storytelling for discipleship. And with that, a whole online course that will follow, which we are actually launching next week on September 30. So come join us for the webinar this week, September 26, Thursday, 9 a.m. U.S. Eastern Time, to find out more about the important skill of storytelling for discipleship and about the course itself, which is coming just a few days later. If you'll decide to do the course, which won't take a lot of time, you'll receive a certificate and a badge that will be reflected on your IWM account. Our goal, friends, in the future is to help you, Adventist missions practitioners, gain critical skills for your mission service. Now, back to the webinar this week. You can register for it by going to iwmadventist.org forward slash webinars or simply Scroll down right on the homepage of our website to the bottom section where we provide a link to this week's webinar. Like I said, the webinar will be on Thursday this week, September 26, 9 a.m. U.S. Eastern Time. And you do need to register to attend it. Or if you want to watch it later, you still need to register before it actually happens. Friends, my name is Alex Ott, and I'm looking forward to seeing you next week.